and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting interest from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought, bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of interest stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, good morning. As I started to read and pray and think about today's subject, I found my thoughts kept collecting around a single question. What is good government? Because one test of any system of government is how well it can handle human conflicts of all sorts. So what is good government? What enables a community to thrive? To be a community where people thrive. The Hebrew answer, and surely our answer too, is to live life with God at the center. To live life with God. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see folk trying to do that. And here's the historical recap. Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed. All the governing class, all the skilled artisans, Anyone who'd make a city strong economically and politically 
has been taken to Babylon. About two or three generations later, the Persians conquer Babylon, and those of Israel who want to are free to return. Most don't. Some do. And those who do return aren't finding it at all easy to re-establish themselves. The land hasn't stayed empty. This is now a contested space. There's problems getting a worship routine going and a building in which that can happen. There's problems defending the whole enterprise from the aggression of others. And problems too with how Israel should relate generally with the culture of those others. How involved with them should they be? Trading with them? Marriage? Families? Ezra and Nehemiah in Babylon each came to hear of the struggles of the community back in the land and returned there to help. So what scripture did the struggling community have to give them focus? Well, Ezra was a very learned scholar and he brought the Torah, the Moses focus. But there were prophecies too, important ones. Jeremiah, as he told Jerusalem that they would fall because of their sustained unfaithfulness, also told them that a time would come when God would make a new covenant, when Torah would be in their minds as if written on their hearts. And then Ezekiel, in the first wave of deportees to Babylon, recorded the visions he saw of a restored Israel, visions of stony hard hearts replaced by soft ones, visions of God's spirit bringing old bare bones to life, as God had first made humans from earth, putting his breath in them. Creating a people, a community, at whose center God would dwell. How will all this scripture mix to provide a sense of direction for the returned community? How will these words bind them together in their life lived with God? In that passage just now, it seems that there was some serious conflict and there seems to be a resolution. What exactly was wrong and what put it right? It seems that the burden had been far from equally borne that those who were most vulnerable had been exploited. Nehemiah gives everyone a good hearing and then reminds those who are in a position to take advantage that they are to walk in the fear of their God. And that seems to do it. They accept that they have a responsibility towards their fellow Jews and they repay what they shouldn't have taken. I'm at the end of two weeks of a heavy cold and my brain's still fogged, so I'm bothered that this talk will be more expressive than coherent, so please bear with me. But what I felt about the whole Nehemiah narrative was some significant disappointment. And the more I thought about it, the more I wondered if maybe that's exactly the point. I empathized readily enough with the pioneer restoration community trying to get it right this time to keep the covenant faith, to stay encouraged and keep focus. But although there's lots in the narrative about the provision for construction and its protection, about the provision and protection of the women and children sent away, there's not a word. That's disappointing. 
And the whole book ends with Nehemiah knocking people around for not being holy. Bit of a letdown. So I wondered if that's how I'm supposed to feel. That best human efforts fall short. Best efforts, God-orientated efforts, fall short. We're left bruised, yet still yearning for God to make things good. There's going to be a long four or more centuries and two more empires until we, saw, we, till we see God doing holiness without ejecting the potentially contagious. That waiting, that longing, help us appreciate the arrival of God's radical good government when it comes in Jesus. When God's kingdom comes near, when Jesus moves towards people, it's his holy wholeness that's contagious. At his touch, lepers are clean. The crippled dance, the blind see and the dumb praise. And those in profound mental chaos receive order and peace. Moving closer to take a look at the roots of human conflict and the resolution God offers. But first, in case I'm getting a bit heavy, I bought you a Giles cartoon. I'm going in for some detail. I don't know, can you see that? Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, it's chaos and some mischief, but it's happy chaos and mostly harmless mischief. Do you see the dog that's just been swiped by that cat and the little girl's pigtail being tied in to what's about to happen? What about the boy with his head stuck in the railings? I wonder how that happened. Do you see the mid-flight snowball on its way? Kids say, I got a button from my pajamas stuck up my nose when I was six. <laughs> I think it must have come off when I was getting ready for bed and I didn't know where to put it. <laughs> no, it's not still there. So anyway, back to this scene of happy chaos. Who's taking charge and keeping an eye? That's not the real grandma, by the way, in the middle there. It's a cheeky snow replica with a borrowed hat and brolly. I wonder what would be your top tips for managing small children. Leave them to grandma? The best training material I was ever given as a teacher was a middle manager's course in Suffolk. Um, I went and found the folder the other day, almost from a time before photocopiers, but 30 years on, the advice is still good. Keep objectives clear, communicate and listen, create a developmental flow, celebrate movement, and so on. And each unit of training would circle back to this mantra on the front cover. Management is achieving goals by, with, and through people by, with, and through people. In other words, keep your mind on the people, not just the project. Because in truth, the reality back in school was often rather more like the Giles cartoon, everyone occupied with their own purposes, and usually not such a happy chaos. Okay, so it's time for your one-minute natter to your neighbors. And here's my suggestion. Uh, perhaps share just one top tip 
for being in charge of small children, or if you prefer, um, uh, how to make good relationships on a work project. But just before you start that, Natter, you'll know your minute's up because I'll put a quiz question up on the screen. It'll be a photo, and you have to decide what country, what country is that photo. Anyway, Natter time first, top tips for small children. Call out when you know. Or just take a guess. A good try. No, not Olympus. No, not Holland. This is Turkey. This is Priene, and it's just down the road from Ephesus. And in Priene, archaeologists discovered an inscription in Greek and here's a translation. Uh, this is um, a local pagan priest making a dedication speech saying how lucky they all are that the Roman emperor has made the world such a nice place. And I've included it to help us see what good government, really good government, God's good government actually looks like. And here's what the flattering priest says. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set things in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he'd done. And since the birth of the god Augustus was the beginning of good tidings for the world. Do you see there's some Greek there? The word good tidings, and then there's some uh, uh, Greek uh, there. Good news, good tidings. Evangelion, and our word evangelist comes from that. A person who brings good tidings. It was a, a political term before it was ever being used there in the gospel. A couple of generations later, uh, uh, the Roman historian Tacitus. Uh, now, Tacitus, I think, died in about 120. Um, and uh, his uh, father-in-law was Agricola, who did a lot of the conquering here in Britain. So a couple of generations later, the Roman historian Tacitus, with his own points to make, was writing about the Roman conquest of Britain and put these defiant words, words before battle, into the mouth of the leader of the Picts, a guy called Calgacus. And Calgacus, from Tacitus, says this about the Romans. These plunderers of the world ravage and slaughter and call it empire. Make a desert and call it peace. So what does good government really look like? Is Tacitus or the Priene inscription the better guide? Because this is the century when Jesus lived. This is the century when the church got started, following a crucified saviour and coming to harm very often themselves. A fellowship living to communicate good news and a risen Lord the real good news of a real saviour. Folk thriving in all the ways that matter, 
living in a peace that isn't a desert. Uh, there's a book written by um, Tom Wright, I think it's called The Challenge of Jesus, and I think he made this uh, point in other places. And uh, Tom Wright's um, um, saying this, he's talking about uh, conflict and God's peace. And to give it some context, the Romans finally destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. After four years suppressing a widespread revolt, a Jewish revolt, attempting to drive out the Romans from Palestine. A Jewish commander called Josephus could see after the first year that the struggle was useless. He changed sides and moved, across, uh, moved around the country, attempting to persuade other rebels to change sides as well. When it was all over, he was comfortably installed back in Rome and wrote up his memoirs in Greek, like the New Testament. What Tom Wright noticed was this, that when Josephus reports his speech to a fellow rebel leader, he says this. He says to him, change your thinking. Give up your agenda and trust me for mine. But he says it in Greek, of course. And that Greek, that Greek phrasing is exactly the same as the Greek in Mark's gospel, which we have in English translation as repent and believe. Here it is, Mark chapter 1, and the verses are 14, 15, excuse me. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Do you hear it? Jesus is saying, change your thinking, give up your agenda, and trust me for mine. In the incarnation, the father-son relationship is made manifest, visible, tangible, and remarkably open to all. The father-son relationship is by nature inclusive, by nature inclusive, by intention inclusive. In the Giles cartoon, each child is preoccupied with their own activity. Children are like that. The cartoon is great fun, but in reality, each of us occupied with our own goals eventually brings us to conflict. But what to do? What to do? If we yield, it can feel as if we're a pawn in someone else's game. It can feel as if we're just a resource available to someone else's agenda. Conflict, stuck in a painful place. So what's God's resolution? Jesus coming into Galilee, saying repent and believe. This is the real end of exile. This is the real liberation. This is the exodus. God's resolution, we are to give up our agenda, not to someone else's selfish objective, but we give up our agenda and trust God for his. And it's not about being someone's doormat. And sometimes there's a necessary contest. But we only fight where God marks the ground for battle. And we only fight in a manner consistent with the goal. 
Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement come to mind, but there's gospel fights for human dignity and the honor of creation everywhere. And the words of Jesus are always the same. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. Give up your agenda and trust me for mine, says Jesus. So now to close, let's take a short moment to pray about a conflict, a conflict we're personally close to. Perhaps that's a conflict we're involved in. Perhaps we're just caring observers. It's a place of contested agendas. Hold this situation where God can see it, where you can look at it together. It's hard. It's hard. Focus on Jesus and with the familiar phrase, say your kingdom come. Amen. we just ponder on that phrase, give up our agenda.